Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Owen Gleedle. Owen is Director of Online Ticketing and Admission Solutions Specialist, Merlin Soft, an award-winning firm for admission and ticketing solutions. Uh, Owen, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, yes, good morning. Good morning, Owen. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme uh, today. Um, it certainly is a lovely day for it, and I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in early June 2021, and thus we are still somewhat in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic, albeit we now seem to be moving out of social restrictions. And given that we have been living under some form of lockdown for the best part of the last 14 months, I was wondering to what extent all of this had affected you and affected your business? Well, I mean, we work very much in the uh, visitor attractions, venues and events sector. So the, the key thing that affected us was last March, on the 23rd of March, when effectively all visitor attractions were closed, all venues were closed and all public events were cancelled. So in essence, from an overnight uh, situation of having a business to a situation of having no business with absolutely no income whatsoever. So I think the effect on us initially was quite dramatic. Certainly so, but um, it appears as well that you have managed to uh, to pivot and adapt during the uh, the pandemic. And some of the new systems you've developed um, have helped grow turnover in excess of 300%, haven't they? So there has been some good come out of this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, key, the key thing uh, was twofold, really. The, fir- the first key uh, happening, as far as we were concerned, was the ability to put staff on furlough. That effectively ensured that at least our staff were were kept, were able to be kept. Uh, and, and the second thing that happened, uh, which was quite fortuitous, was the that we had a really, really hot spring, early summer, which sounds a bit crazy, but that actually made made the fruit in the fields ripen a lot quicker and a lot better than than was expected. And the the outcome of that was there was nobody to pick it because the Eastern European fruit pickers who would normally have been here picking the fruit weren't allowed to be here because of the COVID restrictions. So effectively, there was an opportunity there for us to step in and do something to allow the the fruit picking uh, season to take place. picking up on, on the back of the fact that the, the fruit farmers themselves were getting quite desperate and didn't know how to get their fruit picked. Uh, and and this, was, this was picked up on by the government. And our prime minister uh, came out and actually said to the, to the nation, effectively, uh, we, 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 the fruit farmers, need your help. We need you to go out, pick the fruit, save the farms and feed the nation. Uh, and, and on the back of that, uh, we developed a, a fruit picking voucher system that allowed all the fruit farmers to plan and, and control their visitor numbers, their times, their sessions, keep all their staff safe, uh, maintain social distancing and all of that. Uh, so you're quite right. We went from zero to hero uh, in a matter of, of three or four months. 
And certainly it seems that you've sort of done a lot of trailblazing in that respect as well. You've sort of paved the way for really a government message to the uh, the country there. And that's really brought, brought your business into the limelight, which is absolutely fantastic. And um, thinking about sort of the last 14 months by and large, I can imagine that from that experience, you've perhaps come away feeling like you've maybe learned quite a lot from all of this too. Well, yes. I mean, I think the thing you learn uh, as an SME uh, is the ability to adapt, call it pivoting, call it adaption, call it whatever you want. I think you have you have to have that ability and you have to be prepared to, to do that. I think the the fact that you are an SME, uh, that you, you can turn your tank around a lot quicker than, than some of the bigger companies can. So you can be in the marketplace with something uh, fairly quickly and fairly effectively. Uh, I think that that's one of the keys. And the second one, I think, is something that, that I, I was taught many, many years ago uh, by a very good friend of mine who said that you know, people buy, buy solutions. They have a problem. They want somebody to solve it. If you can solve it, then you're made for life. And, and his, 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 his quick quip was problem-seeking, problem-solving, friend for life. And, and that's the, the, the maxim, if you like, that, that we've worked towards on many occasions. And a lot of the solutions that have come about during the COVID-19 situation have been technological, haven't they? And I think what the pandemic seriously has done is paved the way for technology to play much more of an integral role in our day-to-day lives. I think that is true, isn't it? Yes, I think you're right. I mean, any situation that's forced upon people, whatever it might be, good or bad, uh, gets people thinking, gets people adapting, gets people uh, innovating uh, and and lots of innovations over centuries have come out of adversity rather than uh, than good times I think that's very right indeed I think um, we've seen unprecedented levels of innovation and new solutions coming out of quite difficult periods economic recessions for example and we've had such a significant one over the course of the year the last few months so even though it has been such a difficult and quite a tragic time for so many there is a real silver lining to come out of this quite dark cloud. And I think it is that innovation, but also that increased sense of community and unison that's come out of coming together during a crisis that we shouldn't lose sight of as well in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, whatever, whatever lessons we've learned need to be learned, need to be picked up on good and bad. Uh, and we need to be able to move forward with that, that uh, and we've now got the benefit of hindsight because we've been there and we've gone through it. So we can look back and, and, and see what was good and what was bad uh, and what we shouldn't repeat and what we can actually uh, make better and move forward with it. Now, thinking back to the very beginning of the uh, the pandemic now, um, when there was a lot of, well, a lot more uncertainty, let's say, I can imagine that there were a few issues with anxieties and people's mental well-being because they were sort of delving into the unknown a lot with this. So thinking back to that period, Owen, how was it managing that side of things and mobilising your team? Well, I think, as I said before, the, the, the key element was to make sure that the staff still had jobs. And I think the furlough scheme did that for them. So that, that took a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the pressure off quite a lot of people that uh, they, they knew that their jobs were going to be safe uh, in, in the majority. And I have to say that because I know 
there were some companies that took the advantage of furlough, but with always the uh, the objective that their staff wouldn't be coming back. So they 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 took the the, the option of of keeping things ticking over, as it were, at the government's expense without any real commitment that staff would come back. Well, that that wasn't our uh, objective at all. Our objective mm-hmm. was to look after the staff to make sure that they didn't have to worry about paying mortgages and, and, and all the rest of the stuff that they needed to do. And there would be jobs for them at the end of it, in our case, because we actually managed to do something a bit innovative and a bit special. They came back perhaps quicker than some would have done. Uh, but most people, I think, would have would have been back anyway once the world started to open up again. And exactly, we've seen some unprecedented measures from government to sort of keep business supported during this time. The furlough scheme is one real example of that. But also at the same time, there has been an awful amount of criticism of certain elements of their leadership for various reasons in various industries. And I think hindsight, perhaps, as we've mentioned, does perhaps play a part in that. And it's only when you're sort of in a leader's position that I guess you appreciate how difficult leadership actually is in any context. And therefore, maybe during this crisis, we've perhaps learnt an awful lot about leadership in itself, haven't we, would you say? Yeah, I think uh, a business leader clearly has two key functions. The first one has to be the business because that's effectively what he or she is leading. But the second one, which is just as important, if not more so, is the staff that form that business. So you've got to take both sides of the same coin and say, right, okay, I need to try and protect the business as best as I can, but I need to ensure that my staff are safe, are catered for, uh, and, and are well provided for. So any any leader has to look at that. Irrespective of what you're leading, you have to look at the resources you have uh, and the people that are going that are going to use and manage those resources and get your finest balance across both. You do, absolutely right. And leaders have also had to really sort of step up to the plate and lead by example during this time. And I suppose as well, when we think about sort of the well-being question that's been significantly amplified by the pandemic, it's easy when you're in a business leadership role to get sucked into that survival mode mentality of, I have to sort of step up, take care of everybody else. I have to lead by example, run the business. And therefore it can be difficult to sort of step back and consider your own well-being as well at times times, can't it? And we've been discussing within the Leaders' Council an awful lot lately, the effects of stress and of CEO burnout especially. So that is something also that leaders have to be able to consider, their own mental well-being and being able to step back when they need to as well, don't they? Yeah, I think that that, that becomes very secondary though. And I think possibly some, some people have suffered as a result of that in that they've been so so concentrated on their staff, their business, and, and the, the external stuff that they've failed to look after themselves. And I, I'm aware of, of a few situations that I, I personally know of where people have, have, have actually realized that, well, it's, it's really affecting me, this, and I'm not doing anything about it. And I think that has to be a balance. But that, that's quite difficult because, you know, the, as you quite rightly say, the, the leader is expected to lead. Uh, so everybody looks up. Uh, or across or however you look at your leader uh, and expect the answer to come from there irrespective of the circumstances and and sometimes the pressure of that 
is often un- overlooked by by not just the individuals who are requesting it, but also by the person themselves as to what pressure it's putting them on, uh, and, and it creates stress, it creates sleepless nights, and, and various other things that that they don't realise it in, in its early stages and don't recognise in its early stages. Mm. And I, I think, think that's so. something that that some situations could have had better support. I, t- I completely agree with you. I think it is something that's incredibly important and certainly issues with mental well-being could be one of the many negative consequences of COVID to really keep an eye on in the coming months. And just thinking about what is to come on the horizon just before we do wrap things up uh, this morning, Owen, um, I'd be interested to understand what you see on the horizon over the next year and where you would like your business, Merlin Soft, to be this time in 12 months as we hopefully move out of the lockdown period and into that post-COVID world. Well, what we're already seeing uh, is, is picking up from last year. We're seeing that uh, fruit picking, the people who did, who did the, uh, the fruit picking systems last year found it so beneficial in terms of management and control, even from things like car parking and, and, and uh, the amount of staff that they needed. They knew how many visitors were coming. They knew what time they were coming. They, they knew whether they had enough fruit or not so they could turn. They could turn the system on or off depending upon fruit requirements. So it's quite interesting that, that probably 95, at least percent of those people that were forced into it last year actually preferred to do it that way and are doing it again this year. So that's a positive for us. The fact that we're now looking forward to towards the end of this month when indoor attractions can start happening again and we can get children's play centers and things like that opened. And I think that will be a positive because people are desperate to get out and do things. Uh, there's been too many restrictions, and I think it's very difficult to control people's expectations when you can't do this and you can't do that. So I think there's there's some real opportunities there for, for people to get out and about and for us to benefit from that. I think that's very right. And hopefully we do start to see us moving out of restrictions further and we start to take more tangible steps toward normal life in the coming weeks. Owen. Um, I've got to say, thank you ever so much for joining us on the show today, because it has been a real eye opener for me personally. And I'm sure the listeners certainly feel the same. And I actually think as we start to understand what sort of recovery we can expect in the months to come, it would be great to actually catch up and have you back on with us again, just to sort of see how things are going and what's changed since this discussion we're having now. Yeah, I think that that's fair comment. I think one of the things that, that may change, and picking up on your earlier point about what the situation might be moving forward, I mean, one, one of the, the terms that are currently being referred to are staycations, people vacationing in this country as opposed to going somewhere else. And mm. I think that will have a positive impact because I think people will actually realize there's some great stuff here. You don't have to go on a plane and fly to somebody else's country. But if you're just prepared to look and find what's happening and I think the the benefit may be that our own country actually benefits from its own people more than it would have done otherwise. Mm, that is something certainly to consider and already in uh, maybe the the retail industries for example there's more of a vigor for buying British and sticking to um, homemade and home source products so I think you're very right I think that is something that we certainly might see um, Owen, again, thank you so much for joining us today. And just before we do wrap up, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're just not quite out of the woods with this yet, but we're very, very close. 
Well, thank you for that. And, and you know, we're, we're like everybody, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed and, and we're, we're looking forward, not backwards. Exactly right. Looking forward is what we must do right now. Um, it was a pleasure welcoming Owen Gleedle of Merlin Soft onto the programme today. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by incumbent leaders, council chairman and former education secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be offering his take on the events of the last 12 months and also putting forward his view as to what should come in the weeks ahead. Um, that will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local 
supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because uh, 
mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not Uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, 
Andy has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. <laughs> thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.